Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to the EPL Roundtable. I'm your host, Kevin DeVries, and as always, if you'd like to reach us at the podcast, you can do so by either tweeting us at EPL Roundtable or emailing us at EPLRoundtable at gmail.com. Hi, Kev. Thanks for having me back on. Um, I'm Sam Karp, a Crystal Palace fan. I write for the Eagles Beak, and I'm also the deputy editor at SportsPro. You can find me on Twitter at Sam double underscore Karp. Hello, my name is Thomas Nygren. I write about Liverpool for a Swedish website called lfcsv.se. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for joining me today, guys. Obviously a bit of a bitter pill to swallow for myself today after Tottenham's crushing draw with Newcastle after they get a really controversial late handball call. Obviously not the only one of the week. Several matches seeing this same handball rule applied. Now, a lot of people will know, but some perhaps not, that IFAB and FIFA have taken over um, the ruling and the VAR systems for the Premier League this season after a couple of years of, of the Premier League not choosing to do so. Obviously, all of these handball rulings part of that new rule set. Um, if you go online, you can find them in, in a lot of different places, but they're very convoluted and some rules trump other rules. Um, but I just wanted to get your guys' takes, first of all, on some of the handball calls that we've seen this weekend. And Sam, it's, it's a very easy segue for me today uh, because obviously one of the worst ones was against Joel Ward. Yeah, um, as a Palace fan, I guess I'm somewhat uniquely placed to discuss this, having both benefited from and been on the receiving end of some of the nonsensical handball decisions yeah. that have taken place in the last couple of weeks. You know, naturally, I was delighted when it went our way against United, but also pretty bemused when it went against us on Saturday against Everton. But I don't think either of them should have should have been penalties. I mean, by the letter of the law, obviously they are. But um, as a sort of watching fan, uh, it was pretty hard to, hard to accept that either of those situations resulted in penalties. You know, I think I think there's a problem that even as fans watching, we don't really know what the rule is anymore. You know, why are certain situations penalised and others aren't? Why was Joel Ward's handball yesterday given as a penalty, but Dominic Calvert-Lewin's in the second half when his Wilfred Zaha shot from reaching the goal not given as a penalty? Um, you know, these kind of, these phrases like making yourself unnaturally bigger simply don't provide enough clarity in my opinion they they remain open to interpretation and all it's succeeding in doing is creating a lot of confusion um and what you end up having is people criticizing the referees who are simply having to enforce those bizarre rules that have been handed down to them by the international football association board i think after the game the spurs game today you saw um one of the spurs coaches getting sent off for his reaction um and again it's not it's not the referee's fault that he's had to give that i think I think Roy Hodgson summed it up pretty well yesterday when he said that it's kind of sapping some of the enjoyment out of the game. Um, and you're just going to end up with situations maybe now where players are simply trying to play it, play it off of the opposition's arm because it's 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 something that could lead to a likely goal-scoring opportunity. You know, penalties are supposed to be novelties. Um, they completely change the course of a game. And I think the situation that we have at the moment is, is pretty ridiculous. Um, I think... A guy at ESPN, I think you shared this thread earlier, Kev, before we came on. Mm. Um, he was alluding to the impact of this rule in other leagues and since since the rule's been enforced. And obviously Serie A and La Liga had 57 and 48 penalties, respectively, from Hambles with, with this rule in place last season. And Duncan Alexander tweeted earlier that we're on track for 269 penalties this campaign. <laughs> yeah. um, I'm sure it won't get that far, but it could have does demonstrate how out of hand it's getting because you know as i say you know penalties completely change games and that's what we're seeing at the moment it's cost spurs a point today it's cost palace a point yesterday um arguably cost united a point against us last week um so yeah my overriding feeling is that it's boring it's fast cool and it's going to fundamentally change the way the game is played because if the rule stays as it is defenders are going to have to adapt the way that they play um 
and yeah, as I, as I was saying to you guys before, I've, I always said when when VAR came in, I thought I thought it was a solution to a problem that to a problem that wasn't there. And I think my sentiment is similar with this new handball rule. You know, it's not it's not really solved. It's not solving anything. It's not making the game better. Um, like with some of the crazy offside decisions we saw last year with the arm with the armpit, as we were talking about, I think there has to be some sort of leeway applied, some sort of common sense. Um, so yeah, go back to how it was. If it's deliberately done, it's a handball. Sure, that still leaves it open to the interpretation of the referee, but at least then there is some accountability because at, at the moment it is just the rule makers hiding behind the officials. Uh, yeah, I agree. I uh, I don't like this new rule at all, and we haven't been affected by it yet. Yeah. They need to change it because the way it's used now is uh, ridiculous. It will change the way the team plays if it's this easy to win a penalty. We've seen it uh, twice this weekend that... Uh, We've seen two penalties that is uh, correct if you look at the new rule, but uh, I don't think that anyone who watches the game agrees. I don't think the Newcastle supporters thought it was a penalty today, for example, but of course the referee's done the right thing. And uh, here in Sweden, it's the, almost the only thing they talk about during the games is the handball situations. They talk about that more than they talk about the way team plays or the new signings and so. And uh, that makes the half-time discussions even more boring than before. Uh, I understand that it's hard to write a rule where you want the referee to use common sense, but it's the same as with the offside discussions last season. It's not good for the sport to have it like this. If you look at the penalty Everton got yesterday, it's impossible for the defender to do anything. He's moving and he, he needs his arms for balance. If he's got to run around with his arms around his back, it's going to fall. And <laughs> that will look... Uh, quite ridiculous and it's uh, it's uh, impossible for the defender to do anything and uh, we can't have a rule that forces the defenders to run around with their arms around their back or as the Spurs game today you need your arms to jump it's hard to jump when you have your arms on your back and uh, both penalties were crucial to the games and came from situations that wasn't close to being dangerous we will never have a handball rule that is perfect but uh, I think it's getting worse and worse for every season and uh, now with the VAR system, every touch on the ball gets noticed. So we will have a lot of penalties coming from this kind of situations. And uh, a penalty is almost the same thing as a goal. And it doesn't feel right to get them this easy. If we are going to have this kind of rule that uh, it's this easy to, be, to get a handball, then maybe it would be better to give it a, to do a free kick or something like that. It makes mm. it a little bit harder to score. Because uh, it's very hard to determine if a player takes the ball with a hand deliberately. But even if that is not the best way to make it, I think it's better than to have it like this. Because just look at the way Newcastle played at the end. To throw in Andy Carroll and play high balls into the penalty area, there will be these kind of discussions. So I, I really want them to change the rule, but I don't think that we will see it in the future. Yeah, we'll get to the timing of, of those ruling changes here in a second. But you brought up a really interesting point there, which was um, that, that that common sense uh, ruling used to kind of prevail. And I think that's kind of where you were going with uh, earlier, Sam, as well, of, you know, it, how big of an issue was it? Obviously, it's a subjective call trying to decide, like, what a player's intent was uh, with their hand positioning. But more often than not, the decision that the referee made probably was understood by the fans we knew as as viewers either in the stadium or at home what a handball looked like and what one didn't look like and so so obviously there would be ones that would go for you there would be ones that went against you but for the most part it was understood now the big discussion point with var was to try to eliminate subjective calls so that's what's happened now is if it touches a defender's hand in the box it is a penalty regardless of intent there are obviously a lot of caveat rules like how quickly uh, the amount of space in between players uh, how quickly it gets on them, if they see it or not, if it's a physical reaction, unnatural position, all that stuff. But all of that is basically a subsection underneath these highlighted rules, which are basically it cannot touch your arm uh, in the box, especially if it's above the shoulder, which obviously was not the case with Joel Ward, but arguably was with Eric Dyer, uh, shift in the back notwithstanding. But how do you guys feel about that particular decision, that it's more important that things be empirical always the same if it touches a hand in the box it's a penalty versus subjective where sometimes you would get decisions called incorrectly either for or against you yeah i mean i think i think it goes back to what i was 
saying before as well and at the moment even with this rule that we have it's remarkably inconsistent um it's hard to, you know we don't have that situation where if the ball does touch your hand in the box it's it's a penalty because there have been numerous situations i mean you look at eric dyer's one today literally two minutes before the penalty was given you had a very similar situation um yeah. hand was lower back but yeah. was hand was a bit lower yeah but back was turned maybe hit him slightly different part of the arm but again you're sort of sat there wondering well why was this one why wasn't this one given why was the later one given and i think as you say kev i think as football fans we all we all know what when a player is meant to handball it and when he hasn't i think we've all sat there in a stadium and as as crystal palace as a crystal palace fan i've i've watched wilfred zaha blast the ball at a defender from a yard away it come off their midriff or something and everyone shouts handball in hope rather than expectation because that's just part and parcel of going to football but i think fundamentally we we have the knowledge to know when when a player is deliberately handling the ball and we can appreciate when a referee deems that to be the case even if it is given against your team whereas at the moment i don't think there is any understanding of or not understanding but i don't think anyone is watching these penalties being given and thinking that player has gained advantage by handling the ball or deliberately meant to do so um so i think absolutely not i would i would i wouldn't want to have a situation where absolutely every time it touches an arm it's a penalty um i think we do have to go back to as i was saying earlier i think we have to go back to a common sense ruling where even if you are going even if the referees are going to make some mistakes it's still a little bit more interesting um the discussion changes a little bit as thomas was alluding to before because the halftime conversations at the moment are so boring but at least when you do have those case by case situations um it does make it does make things a little bit more entertaining a little bit more interesting and just you know completely eradicates this kind of robotic system that we have at the moment which i think is what has happened over the past year to the premier league you know with var with with this with this handball rule it is kind of roboticizing football in a way it's just trying to make something which is a human a human product into something which is kind of perfect and clean and everything which it isn't you know that's what we love about football it's imperfect people do make mistakes and um i think that kind of is what should be applied when it comes to making the rules for the game yeah i i agree it's 100 uh, i think we need to go back to the more of a common sense rule when it comes to handball because uh, in the end, it's it's way too easy in football nowadays to to win a penalty when it comes to both falling down in the penalty area and now with the handball as well. And a penalty is the same thing as a goal, and um, it affects the games way too much. And um, yeah, now we need to get back to the way that we had because you can see when you watch a game when a player stops the ball deliberately or when they stop a goal scoring opportunity. If you look at the way Luis Suarez stopped the ball against um, Ghana in the World Cup, that's a, that's a penalty. <laughs> but if you look at um, yeah, like like today with Spurs, he doesn't even know that the ball is coming again against his arm. There's no way that he's deliberately that he stops it. And I think it's better that the, the referees makes a few mistakes with a deliberately stop for the handball then to have it like this when everything is a penalty. So go back to the way that it, that it was before and uh, it was less worse, less bad to have it like that. Yeah, it's, it's certainly difficult. I mean, for me, I don't know what a handball looks like anymore. In theory, it should just be it always hits the hand. But to your point, Sam, it did hit Dyer in the same hand not five minutes before uh, and still didn't get called. Obviously, VAR is a component of this, but I think this really is more of an issue with the ruling. But unfortunately, as much as we complain about it, as much as you hear uh, Steve Bruce complain about it, even though it benefited his team today, which I thought was really cool uh, to hear, obviously, as much as Roy Hodgson uh, voiced his complaints about it yesterday, obviously, on the receiving end. This is an IFAB decision. Now that the Premier League and IFAB are in bed together in terms of regulations and rules, they only change decisions once a year. I think that meeting's in March, if memory serves. Any decisions that they make don't go into play until next season. So unless there was a splitting between the Premier League and IFAB slash FIFA after less than a month, uh, then we're probably stuck with these rules and we're going to have to get used to them, which is obviously very irritating, and I'm sure it'll it'll reduce the enjoyment of some fans. Um, and if, for some reason, all of these pleas from high-level managers somehow get something done, 
uh, be very grateful because in terms of how things look at this exact moment as we record, it would take some doing uh, for these rulings to be changed anytime before the start of next year. All right, uh, we will move on from there and talk a little bit about two clubs that were allegedly locked for the top four. Coming into the season, a lot of people assumed that it was going to be some order of Liverpool and City and then some combination of of Manchester United and Chelsea to lock up all four of those Champions League spots. Now, Manchester United and Chelsea both didn't look fantastic yesterday. Both of them were down uh, for stretches of their games, but both of them come back to secure points. Chelsea from 3-0 down come back to draw 3-3. Manchester United uh, from 1-0 down come back to win 3-2 after a late controversial handball uh, off of Neil Mopai. I just wanted to get your guys' thoughts on, on those performances. Are you more impressed that they were able to pick up points on what was clearly a bad day for both, or are you more kind of questioning their status as basically top four locks? Um, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say I was particularly impressed. Uh, I'm not sure that would be the right words. They were both games that you would, you know, you'd expect Manchester United and Chelsea as contenders for the top four to win. Um, obviously, United were able to do so in the end. Chelsea weren't. So, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure I'm impressed would be the right word, but I'm sure they'll both be happy that, they were able to get something from their respective games, although I'm sure neither Ole Gunnar Solskjaer or Frank Lampard would have been very happy with their side's performances. Um, I think Brighton deserved to win the game against United. I lost count of how many times they hit the woodwork. And obviously for Chelsea, going 3-0 down in the way they did against a newly promoted side will be a pretty big concern. Um, but having said that, I'm not sure I worry for either of them this season. I didn't think before the campaign that they had a realistic chance of challenging for the title and and the race for the top six has become so unpredictable unpredictable in recent years you know teams are dropping points all the time um so i don't think a slow start to the season is going to have a massive impact on where they want to be come the end of the campaign um and also without wanting to make excuses for either side because I, I certainly don't like making excuses for any team in the top six um I do think it's important to remember that obviously United finished their Europa League campaign in mid-August. Um, they haven't had much of a pre-season, so I think it was always going to take them a couple of games to get up to speed. They certainly looked off the pace against Palace last week. Um, Chelsea, similarly, while they didn't have the same European commitments and unlike United, have spent heavily to add some real talent to improve their squad, it's, it's going to take some time for those signings to settle in as appears to be the case with Timo Werner, who I think a lot of people expected to hit the ground running. Um, so yeah, I don't think, I don't think either side are in for tougher seasons than I'd maybe expected. Um, United possibly, if they don't strengthen before the end of the window, they obviously need another centre back. I think that's, that's pretty clear from, from the first two games. Um, I don't think either will be challenging for the title. I think they'll be in the conversation for the top four again, certainly. Um, but but Lampard in particular will need to start picking up results soon, I imagine, because because he has been backed so significantly in the transfer market. Yeah, I uh, I agree. I don't think they will compete for the title this season, but um, of course they will be in the fight for the top four spot. And it's still very early. The teams have had a very different preseason. Chelsea's got a new a lot of new players coming in. But uh, I would be a bit worried if I supported any of them. I couldn't watch the United game, but from what I've heard, they were very lucky to get away with the win against Brighton. They weren't very good against Palace last week. Uh, Chelsea equalized late yesterday, and of course, it's impressive to get back from three goals behind. But the way they conceded the goals should be a bit worrying. I think both teams will finish high in the table, like last season. But uh, I think they will be quite a bit behind both us and uh, City. And one of the reasons for that is that I think don't think they're... Managers simply is good enough. I know that Frank Lampard is very popular among Chelsea supporters, but to me, he's doing the same things wrong this season as last season. They um, they don't defend good enough. They were unlucky with a red card against us, but yesterday they conceded three goals to a team that they should beat. And last season, they were great going forward, but conceded too many goals. And you can see the same signs this season as well. And I'm not sure that Lampard's got the ability to change it. And... Um, if his name wasn't Frank Lampard, I think there would be discussions already about maybe they, it was time to replace him. But uh, I think it will get a few few more months and it will be interesting to see what happens if they keep playing like this. Uh, maybe I, it's a bit too hard on him because, we got a, as I said, many new players coming in. If when Thiago Silva is settled and the new goalkeeper can play, maybe 
they will start to to win more games. But uh, I have my doubts on him, and uh, I have I don't rate Ole Gunnar Solskjaer uh, as high as well. Uh, I don't think he's good enough to be manager of Manchester United. And when it comes to them, I think one of their problems is that the squad that they have is a bit thin. When they can't play their first eleven, they they struggle. Uh, and if you look at their back four, their Swedish defender now Victor Nilsson Lindelöf, they write about him quite a lot here in Sweden. That uh, there are discussions about replacing him in Manchester United, and when they are planning to replace him with Erik Bailly, you know that it's going to be, it's going to be an injury soon, and it's Lindelöf back in. So, uh, of course, it's impressive to get something out of these games when they don't play very well, but. Uh, I don't think any of them has addressed the problems they had last season yet. And if they don't, I don't think that they will be much better than they were then. Uh, maybe United can uh, sign a few good players before the transfer window closes. But um, if, they, if it's this squad that United is going to play with this season, I, don't, I think um, they will struggle to get top four. Because Arsenal looks uh, a lot better than uh, I expected them to. Yeah, and, and I think even though we've... Uh... Not got all the points to show for it. Tottenham have played well. Obviously, Leicester off to a fantastic start. Vardy very much finding the form that, that won him the golden boot last season. Uh, Everton, three wins out of three. And, and Hamas really pulling the strings for them already. So, yeah, I, I think there's going to be a lot of competition. It, obviously, it's it's too early to say, but it does feel like this might be way more than just a top six this year. It could be an eight or a nine, all kind of like interchanging there. And uh, obviously would prefer to be on the top of that heap than not, but it should prove to be a very fascinating season. Um, all right, we will move from there on to our specific clubs. So uh, just want to get your guys' thoughts on what your objectives are for the 2021 Premier League campaign or or just all of your, your competitions combined there. Yeah, I'm not sure. Um, I'm not sure Palace's ambitions will be too different from any other Premier League campaign, to be honest with you. Um I think for any team outside the traditional big six, and as you kind of said there, Kev, maybe you'd now extend that to include Leicester, Everton, and maybe Wolves, who are actually 3-0 down to West Ham at the moment, so maybe not. But <laughs> yeah, I think for anyone outside those sides, I think the ambition is always first and foremost to stay in the league. Um, and then whatever comes after that is a bonus. Uh, I also think it's, it's a little harder for a team like Palace to set objectives beyond that at the start of the season. You know, if you're Liverpool, if you're Manchester City, your your objectives are quite clearly to win the league, to win trophies, so you, you know where you need to be from the very start of the campaign. Um, similarly, if you're Arsenal, Chelsea, United, Spurs, the ambition is to finish in the top four, probably also to win some silverware, so you know, again, whereabouts you need to be in the pace you need to be setting from the start of the season. Whereas... For a club like Palace, I think it's a case of getting to the kind of halfway stage and, and seeing where things stand. I think if we are sat in and around 10th, 11th, 12th, then maybe we can look at finishing in the top half. Um, but I just think the strength of, of some of the teams in the league now, like your Leicesters, your Wolves, your Evertons, I, like, like we just mentioned, um, it does make it increasingly difficult for teams like us to look too far beyond securing the Premier League's our Premier League status and setting our sights any higher than that. Um, I think from a fan perspective, just in comparison to last season, I think what would be good as an objective is just to kind of, you know, play better football. I think last year was pretty hard to watch at times. Um, I think we were one of the low, well, we were one of the lowest scorers in the league. I can't, I can't remember if we were the lowest or if that might have been Norwich and we were just one place above them in that. Um, but I think Palace fans will just be happy this season if we are if we are entertained a little bit bit more, you know. Um, not necessarily those turgid one nils that you have to sit through all the time, which were kind of became hallmarks of Hodgson's play last year. And kind of I think the hope is now that we do have a have a stronger squad um, with some some younger talent thrown in there as well. That we, you know, even if we do end up finishing eleventh, twelfth, thirteenth, fourteenth, we'll end up playing some. Some more attacking, entertaining football along the way. Uh, well, uh, for Liverpool, it has to be to to win the title once again because we have uh, almost the same squad as last season, but we have uh, reinforced with a few new players. And as the reigning champions, we have to look at look to win the title once again. And uh, with uh, Thiago coming in, we also have a chance to improve our game even more since he is bringing abilities to the team that we didn't have before. Uh, now it's up to Klopp to find a way to use him without losing the high-pressing game that we used earlier. 
but it would surprise me if he didn't have an idea for that. I don't think we can expect the team to win as many points as last season. And um, I think this will be a season where the points to win the league will be a lot lower than the past three seasons because the tight schedule and the COVID virus will see many players miss games. And that will, of course, have an effect on the teams and the points. But uh, of course, Liverpool has to look to win the league once again to get to 20 titles. Um, if you look at the Cups, it would be fun to have a run in the FA Cup, but I think that it will be up to our backup players since we will need to rest our first 11 now and then. And it's the same with the Carabao Cup. I don't think we'll see many of, the, many of our uh, first 11 in uh, those competitions. Uh, when it comes to Champions League, I think it's a bit hard to say how this, that competition is going to work. If uh, the coronavirus keeps getting worse in Europe, it may be hard to play it in the same way as we used to. But um, if we get a regular Champions League, I think, of course, we have to advance from the group stage and then um, try to compete for the title once again. If you're, if you're in, the, in the playoff stage, we know that Liverpool is good in, in uh, knockout games. So at least to win, to win the league is the most important thing, but it would be fun to have a cup run as well. And in the end, I think uh, this team dreams of uh, to celebrate the league title at Anfield with the fans when the season mm. ends, because even if it was, it was really special to win last season, and it was something that I've been dreaming of for my whole supporter life, but it wasn't, it felt a bit strange to see the players celebrate all by themselves without the fans. And I, I had planned to be in Liverpool to join them on the parade and celebrate. And uh, we didn't get anything of that. So I think that uh, Liverpool players are dying to get a chance to celebrate a title with the fans. And uh, that has to be the main thing for the, the team this season. It's a really interesting point. It, it does give uh, Klopp potentially a little more ammo than a lot of reigning Premier League champions get of there is still something to achieve and, and be able to celebrate in front of your fans. And, you know, obviously you've had the success in the Champions League and, and it sounds like you aren't really prioritizing uh, the FA Cup. But, you know, you're a very good team. I'm sure you'll find wins certain mm-hmm. places. And as you say, if, if you get deep into one of them, I'm sure the, the priorities might might tweak a little bit. But League still definitely the, the primary goal. All right, we will take a quick break and then we'll be back with more club-specific questions for each of our guests. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. All right, and we are back. Sam, we'll start off with you and Crystal Palace. You mentioned there uh, that obviously Crystal Palace not particularly uh, heavy on the on the goal scoring last season, uh, finishing near the bottom in both shots on target and goals, as you mentioned. But all of a sudden, things looking a little bit different. Obviously, you have Zaha, you bring in Eze and Batshuayi. You have Ayu, who was obviously your player of the year last year, led the team in goals. You're being linked uh, to Rian Brewster, who I'm sure uh, <laughs> Thomas will have some thoughts about that. Uh, and all of a sudden, it, it seems like you're kind of building a bit more of an attacking team. Have some of those changes already started to click on the pitch? Are we starting to see a more attacking brand of Crystal Palace? Or do you think you might still need to do some more business before you get there? Um, I think some of the changes have been noticeable from the start of the season. I think the biggest change or the biggest tweak has been that Hodgson has kind of moved from his fairly rigid sort of 4-3-3, 4-5-1 without the ball to more of a 4-4-2 formation, which has freed Zaha of some of his defensive duties, which which he was bogged down by last year and obviously means he spends a lot more time in the positions that as a Palace fan you'd want him to be in. Um which I think was kind of apparent 
in the first couple of games against against Southampton and United. Obviously, you got goal uh, three goals in both of the uh, three goals across those games. Um, and I think just the way we broke, especially in the United game, just looked a little bit more like Palace from a couple of seasons ago where we were a real threat on the counter-attack and we did get forward in numbers and it's just been quite nice to see um, midfielders getting in the box as well. I mean, last season there were just far too many occasions where we would be getting forward, someone would have the, good, have the ball in a good position out on the wing, but there'd be absolutely no one in the middle for them to aim for. So I think those are kind of the most noticeable things already. Um, and as you say, I think the signings that we've made kind of speaks to planning for the future a little bit, both in terms of how we want to play and also just bringing the age of the squad down because I think everyone knows last season we had one of the oldest squads in the league. Um, we looked tired by the end of the campaign and I think I tweeted after, I think it was after our 2-0 loss to Wolves, I think it was the penultimate game of the season, that Palace had to move and they had to move pretty smart in the transfer window because otherwise there was a pretty big risk that we'd carry over a hangover into this into this season. I think that's pretty much what we've done. You know, we've we've got Nathan Ferguson in who obviously is, he's injured at the moment, but again he's a young player who hopefully will be part of the team for a few years to come. Similar with Eze, um, another player that we've brought in who is not only going to improve the squad, he's hopefully going to improve the first team and also is one of those with sell-on value. You know, we don't have many players, other players in the squad with much sell-on value. Um, and then obviously getting Batshuayi back is a big bonus. Um, just immediately makes us more of a goal threat. Um, but I think the biggest thing that those those signings have done is just added competition. Um, if I look to previous seasons, you know, most of the players in the starting eleven knew that they'd be starting every week. Um so, you know, it's it's led to improvement in Andros Townsend's game already because he knows if he isn't good enough, then Eze is waiting for his chance. Um, MacArthur and McCarthy are performing well because they know that if they don't, then Milivojevic is now on the bench, redevoured as well, ready to come in. Um, in defence, Tarek Mitchell, who obviously came through the academy, he's he's added competition for when Patrick Van Arnholt comes back. Ferguson will add competition for Joel Ward. So, you know, it, it just looks a little bit more promising in terms of both the way that we are approaching games and also kind of just the long-term outlook and in, in the way that we're building the squad. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up uh, Mitchell. That, that's where I wanted to go with it. Obviously, pretty pretty solid performances from him thus far. Already part of a clean sheet, got the assist against Manchester United. Obviously, the, the disappointing loss yesterday. But how many more good matches does he need to have before there's a genuine question about whether or not Van Anholt wins that job when he comes back? Yeah, it's a good question. I think um, I think it's definitely moved to a point now where Hodgson trusts Mitchell, whereas I think when he was playing him towards the back end of last season, it was kind of out of necessity more than anything. Um, I seem to remember he had somewhat of a baptism of fire in his first game. I think he was up against um, Triore at Wolves, who obviously definitely not the player that you'd like to see lining up against you first in the Premier League. Um and I think he did run him ragged a little bit in that game. But, um, you know, you're not, you can't expect an academy player to come in and do the business on one of the most threatening wingers in, in the league. But what I think what I think that's done it's, and what's what's kind of become quite obvious at the start of the season is that he really is growing into it and sort of is starting to believe that he is good enough to play at this level. I think there's always a question when you, when you do bed in a player from the academy, you know, it is such a big step up and they do kind of need to... They do need that sort of period where they build up that belief in them in themselves. Um, and you know, Mitchell Mitchell starts look like he's doing that. I think against United, he was really really good, not only defensively but also going forward. He played a part in the first and the third goals. Um, played the ball forward for Schlupp for the first one, who then crossed in for for Townsend, and then played the ball into Zaha for his for his second, which obviously won us the game. Um, so yeah, it's promising, but I, I do think that when Van Arnholt comes back, he will eventually. I think he will take Mitchell's place because Van Arnholt, last season before he got injured, had arguably been one of our best players. Um, he is just such a massive threat going forwards, and I think if we are, um, if we are trying to adopt this more attacking 
style of play, then our fullbacks are absolutely crucial to that. Um, I think the way, as I said, the way Van Arnhol gets forward is really important to the way we play. Uh, Ferguson probably when he moves ahead of Joel Ward once he gets fit will be will be similar. Um, so yeah, well, it would be harsh on Mitchell when he does have to drop out, but I think this period, this spell of games has sort of proved to him and also proved to Hodgson that we do have a ready-made backup, whereas last season, obviously, we were kind of putting square pegs in round holes whenever whenever one of the fullbacks got injured. Yeah, I think you make a lot yeah. of really good points there. They do add that depth, and then in the future, you know, Ferguson and, and Mitchell starts to look a very promising uh, duo in the coming years, in the, in the post-Ward and, and the post-Van Anholt years. Uh, and the more experience they get until then, the better. I, I, it kind of reminds me of Kyle Walker-Peters a little bit, who suddenly started getting chances at Tottenham. Obviously, it didn't go the way we would have liked, but as soon as you can get those those younger players minutes early, it certainly makes it more likely that they'll succeed when they get them uh, a bit more consistently. We'll come to you now, Thomas, to talk a little bit about Liverpool. Obviously, you haven't played your match yet, uh, but I wanted to talk to you a little bit about uh, a little-known player it came from a German team, did something last year, uh, named Thiago Alcantara. Obviously a fantastic player. We've yet to talk to any Liverpool people on the show since. So just wanted to get your your reaction to to that signing and what you think it could mean for Liverpool's midfield and, and success this season on the whole. Uh, first of all, I have to say I was uh, a bit surprised that we signed him because um, he, he's not the kind of player that Liverpool usually sign. He's... Um, getting close to being 30 years old. And uh, we, we had a lot of midf- midfielders even before we signed him. But um, now that he is a Liverpool player, you can see after four to five minutes against Chelsea that he will be a very important player to us because he, he brings something to this team that we didn't have before. Uh, the, the ability to, to break lines with his passes and to, to, get, to get forward uh, in the field in a more effective way. Uh, we have uh, Jordan Henderson, James Milner, we have Wijnaldum, we have Fabinho. We have a lot of good midfielders, but um, they don't pass the ball as well as Thiago Alcantara do. Um, the one thing that I, the, my worry about uh, with this signing is uh, how we're going to use him in our squad without losing the way that we press. Uh, our, be- our three best midfielders, according to me, is... Thiago, Joran Henderson, and Fabinho, and we can't have those three players on the pitch at the same time. Pretty defensive. Yeah, if we want to play in the same way that we that we usually do, we need to have a player like Vinaldim on the pitch, or uh, maybe Oxley Chamberlain. If we want, we need those players who press. And uh, Thiago doesn't run in the same way as uh, our regular midfielders do, but. Um, I think the club uh, wants to take this team one step further. And then now that we have Thiago in our squad, maybe we can uh, change in a more uh, offensive way, in a more effective way, because we've had some tr- some um, problems with the teams playing a uh, low defensive, defensive uh, style against us. And with the passing ability from Thiago, maybe we can uh, lock those teams up in a better way and uh, open up for both uh, Salah and Mane going forward. So the first 45 minutes that Thiago played against Chelsea was uh, magnificent. And uh, I have, of course, I've seen him play a few times in the Champions League, but I don't think that I had realized how how good he was. So um, I'm really looking forward to seeing him him play even more. I heard that he was, uh, that he might miss out on the game tomorrow because of um, an injury. So maybe we have to wait until um, the game against Aston Villa to see him start. But uh, it will be really interesting to see how Klopp wants to use him. If he wants to use him as a, as a number six, where we had Henderson or Fabinho in the past seasons, or if he want to use him higher up, as maybe as a number eight. But um, of course, to have that kind of player in the team is, uh, is, is really interesting. Because as I said, I didn't think that we were going to buy him because uh, it's not the kind of signing that Liverpool does. But now that we... If we want to take a step further and become even better, we have to sign world-class players. And uh, Thiago is a world-class player. I think that um, maybe we will have to see one of our older midfielders leave before the transfer window closes, because now we have eight or nine players competing for three places. And that's a bit too much, even if the schedule this season is quite tight. But um, of course, Thiago will play the games when he's fit. And... um, I think that both Henderson and Fabinho will play many games as well. So 
it looks like Gene Wijnaldum is, is staying, so I can't uh, I can't get my mind to see who's um, who is leaving because we have a bit too many players now. But um, if you have a chance to sign Thiago Alcantara for such a cheap price, of course you have to of course you have to do it. And um, he wanted to come to Liverpool. Klopp wanted him, so I'm really looking forward to see him play. And uh, maybe we will, he we will uh, he will be the player that we wanted Naby Keita to be. Because he hasn't really affected Liverpool in the way that we hoped when he signed a mm. few years ago. Now we have that kind of player who can bring the ball forward and make it harder to defend against us. Yeah, obviously it's it's a fantastic signing. And you raise a good point. It is going to be curious to see who leaves that central midfield position. Obviously some other potential outgoings um, for you as well. The one completed that I'm thinking of is Ovia Haria. But it also looks like you're willing to move on from Rian Brewster although obviously you try to include a buyback clause in there. How likely do you think it is that we'll see someone like Brewster go? Could it potentially be to Seab's Palace? And what do you think the thinking is behind letting some of the talented youngsters that, that seem to kind of be the next generation go? Yeah, I think Brewster will leave. He wasn't even on the bench against Lincoln midweek, so it looks like he's leaving. And uh, on one hand, I can, I can understand why we let him go, because he's, he's, a bit, he's uh, quite far away from getting chances to play from the start in Liverpool. We have we have uh, both Shakiri, Origi, Jota, Minamino. We have many players who can play in the front three, and uh, maybe Brewster isn't up there yet, but it makes me a bit sad as well to see the young players leave. We had Kijana Hoover who left for uh, Wolves last week, and uh, it's exciting to have those young players coming from behind and compete for a place and to watch them in the cup games and so on. You, you need to have young players from your from your the squad to who's close to getting closer to the uh, starting eleven for the young fans to have someone to look up to as we've had with Trent Alexander Arnold. Uh, so of course, I can understand why Rian Brewster leaves. I really hope that we can uh, get a buyback clause, but uh, because if you look at the way he played for uh, Swansea last season, he showed some signs to become a, a really really good player. I think he's. Um, I think he's going to be a, be a better player than, for example, Harry Wilson, who's seen in uh, Bournemouth last season, who's also likely to leave before the transfer window closes. Yeah. Um, if Crystal Palace buy Brewster, I think they will be. I think it would be a very good signing. I think. I think they will. He would be better for the money than uh, Benteke was when they signed him. <laughs> Absolutely, no shade thrown there. Uh, I'm sure. <laughs> Also, I certainly uh, hope so. <laughs> <laughs> also, you mentioned uh, Bournemouth there, who, as Dave and I always talk about on the show, uh, used to buy up all of these kinds of players, the, the Dom Solanke's and Jordan Ibes of the world. And apparently, uh, you, you can't continue that pattern of sales uh, despite we, the amount of money it raised. <laughs> yeah, I bet. <laughs> um, all right, we'll kind of stick with the player mold uh, as we move into Player Watch, where I just wanted to talk to you guys about which players at your club you think could be heading for the exit door before the end of the transfer window. Obviously, we just did some with Thomas, but we'll come to you first, Sam, and, and talk about Crystal Palace. Yeah, um, just before I actually answer that question, it's funny now I think about it. Liverpool have done pretty well out of us in the last few seasons. You know, they've got... <laughs> How much? 28 million for Benteke or whatever it was. 26 million maybe for Sacco. Um, yeah, so Brewster, you'll be closing on like 60, 70 million out of us. Crazy. Um, but yeah, no, in terms of um, in terms of who might be leaving Palace before the end of the window, I mean, there's always, I guess there's always a question over Zaha, isn't there? He's um, He started the season really well, either because he's playing for the captain's armband he got given against United, or perhaps because he's playing for a move. But in all honesty, I still can't see who comes in and makes an offer that Palace deem enough to sell him. Um, so I personally can't see him going anywhere, especially the longer the window goes on, because because Palace won't want to lose him without without oh. time to sign a replacement. Um, and, all, and in all honesty, there just hasn't been as much noise about it this window as, as there have in previous. I think you know clubs are maybe looking at him now as a player who's a little bit older. Um, and you know there's better value for money abroad um, because you know Palace aren't going to budge on on the amount of money they want they want for him. They know how valuable he is to the team and how important he is in in that ambition to stay up every year. So they are not sure, I'm not sure Zaha will be one of those out of the exit door. Um, but beyond that, I I do think 
Palace are looking to move a few on in order in order to bring a couple more players in. Um, Benteke has has been linked with a move to a uh, club Bruges. Uh, someone floated a twenty million pound fee in one report, which I just definitely can't see happening. That seems an awful lot of money for a player who's not got more than five goals in his last couple of seasons. Um, but yeah, I wouldn't. I, it wouldn't be a surprise to see him leave. Um, James McCarthy also was was being linked for Celtic a couple of weeks ago, um, and. It wouldn't be massively surprising if, if Palace let one, one of their centre-backs go, maybe even Sacco, just to get his wages off the bill. Um, I'd also imagine they'll listen to offers from Max Meyer, who, who it just hasn't worked out for. Connor Wickham's still there as well. Um, so, yeah, while the squad is is improving, there's still a fair bit of deadwood in there. Um, plenty of players who are taking up wages. So I think if there is an opportunity to to move one or two of those on before the transfer window closes in order to free up cash to spend elsewhere, then, then they'll be looking to do that. Uh, we touched on Rian Brewster earlier, and I'm quite sure that he will he will leave. The same with um, Harry Wilson. Uh, from Apart from them, I think Loris Karius is leaving on loan to a club in Germany. I think it was Union Berlin. We have Nat Phillips, who is going to leave and I think Marco Grujic will leave as well if we if you find clubs who want them and uh, who wants to pay the right, the right amount of money. I was a bit surprised to see Grujic play against Lincoln this Thursday. He, um, he did really well but as I said earlier it's quite hard to see him get any playing time in our midfield this season because we we already have eight or nine players ahead of him and there are only three three spots to, to play on. So uh, the two players that uh, might leave is uh, Shadan Shakiri and uh, Divock Origi. I don't think they will leave, but uh, if there are clubs out there who wants to pay the right amount of money, I think I think that Liverpool will listen. Uh, when it comes to Shakiri, he had a he had a great game against Lincoln, and I think that he could be a useful player for us this season if he stays fit. Uh, of course, not from as a starting player, but um, you will need a big squad this season, and if he's motivated to fight for a place, he might get some playing time. Uh, he's great at set pieces, can score from distance. So, if we keep him, I think we, if we keep him, I think we can uh, have some use for him. But um, Shakiri and Origi might leave, and uh, there have been a lot of rumors around uh, Gini Vinaldum this summer, and uh, he still hasn't signed the new contract. But uh, I don't think that Klopp wants him to leave because he um, he he brings something to this team that we need. And uh, with uh, Thiago coming in, maybe we can play Vinaldum a bit higher up in the pitch in almost the same way as he's playing in his national team. So I don't think that he will leave. Um, we have a lot of midfielders. Uh, maybe if there, is a, if there is a bid on Wijnaldum from some team, Klopp will listen, but I think that he wants him to stay. Um, so the players who's leaving Liverpool isn't any of the players who's had an effect on the team last season. It's ma- mainly the players who were out on loan. We saw Lovren leave earlier. We've seen Lalana leave. I think that was uh, would be the only players who who were at at, um, at the team last season that will will leave. Apart from that, it's only the player who were out on loan that I mentioned earlier. Um, the team that signs Rian Brewster will be lucky. So um, for Palace's sake, I think uh, I think you try to sign him because uh, he is a good goal scorer. So in the right team with the right players around him. It can be a good signing for any team. All right, thanks for your insights on that. And then we'll wrap up with match previews. Uh, we'll start off with you, Thomas, this time, because you're about to face Arsenal twice in like four days. Uh, so how do you think we're going to see you set up in, in either of those? And any score predictions you'd, you'd fancy a guess at? Well, um, the big game is, of course, the league game tomorrow when we're going to play our, our first eleven. And there are a few injuries in Liverpool now. We've had... Um, had Joe uh, Gomez, Joel Mati, Pjorn Henderson away um, last week. I think that uh, Gomez will be fit to play tomorrow, and I really hope so, because we need. Um, it would be good to have uh, Fabinho on the midfield. Today there are, were reports that both Alisson and uh, Thiago could miss the game, and of course it's a big difference to have uh, Adrian in the goal instead of Alisson. And uh, against uh, Arsenal, who is doing well and uh, Play, played quite good. I would really like Alisson to start. But, um, of course, even if Adrian starts, we should be the best team on the pitch tomorrow and we should beat Arsenal. It would be good to win now that City lost today and we saw many of, a lot of teams at the top drop points. It would be good to win to, 
to get back on the top together with Everton and Leicester on nine points. So I think we'll see our best team tomorrow. I think uh, it, it will be really interesting to see because we played Arsenal twice, both in the Carabao Cup and in the final rounds of the last season, and we haven't beaten them. So uh, it's time for us to, to show Arsenal now that we are a better team. Um, when we play the Carabao Cup, I think we'll see almost the same team as um, played Lincoln last week. Uh, mainly our backup players. We'll see Shakiri, Origi. Uh, maybe we'll see Jota start in that game, and that will be interesting. I don't think he will start tomorrow. Um, one player that I'm looking forward to see this week is Minamino, because he's looked really good on, in preseason. He was very good against Lincoln, and now he has a chance to play against uh, a top team either tomorrow or Thursday. So it will be interesting to see how we can cope with a team like Arsenal. Um, the big thing is, of course, to win tomorrow. The game at the Carabao Cup, I'm, of course, I want the team to win then as well, but the most important thing is to win in the league. Um, it's a tight season, many games. It's not, not terrible to lose in the Carabao Cup now, but... Uh, of course, it's good for the young players and the backup players to have a chance to to get many games. So, in an ideal world, we'll be, win uh, both of those games. Well, certainly, as an entirely unbiased uh, commentator here, I'm sure I don't mind whatever happens in those matches. Um, we will wrap things up there, though. If you'd like to tell folks where they can find you or anything you're working on, now would be a good time. Uh, yeah, my name is Thomas Nygren. You can find me on Twitter at Thomas Nygren. Um, I also wrote about Liverpool for lfcsv.se. It's um, mainly in Swedish, but uh, we have a few Q&As in English before the games. Uh, I also do a podcast called Total Liverpool Podcast. That's also in Swedish, but uh, if there are any people out there who understand Swedish, you can give it a listen. Cheers, Kev. Uh, nice to be back on with you and Thomas. Really enjoyed it. Um, I'm Sam Karp. I'm a writer for the Eagles Beak and the Depsy Editor at Sports Pro. Uh, shameless plug here. We're actually releasing our annual list of the world's 50 most marketable athletes tomorrow. So if that's your mm. kind of thing, keep an eye out for that. Um, and you can also find me on Twitter, obviously retweeting that list at Sam underscore Karp. Cool. Yeah, we'll definitely retweet that out to everybody as well. Also, with the match just coming to a close as we bring the podcast to a close, apologies to West Ham, who we all slated on the show last week and then just won 4 <laughs> dollars at Wolf. So sorry about that. If you want to hear any more of my terrible takes, uh, you can do so on Twitter at Kevroff to find the show. You can obviously go to EPL Roundtable and EPL Index on Twitter. Uh, thanks to both of you so much for coming on today. It was a pleasure as always, and we hope you keep listening. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.